If you need to go back and watch the previous clips, I'll link to them up above my head here. McLean details how partnered with Koch, Buchanan's outpost at George Mason University was able to connect libertarian economists with right-wing political actors and supporters of corporations like Shell Oil, Exxon, Ford, IBM, Chase Manhattan Bank, and General Motors. Together they could push economic ideas to the public through media, promote new curricula for economics education, and court politicians in nearby Washington, D.C. At the 1997 50th anniversary of the Mont Pelerin Society, McLean recounts that Buchanan and his associate Henry Mann, a founding theorist of libertarian economic approaches to law, focused on such affronts to capitalists as environmentalism and public health and welfare expressing eagerness to dismantle Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare, as well as kill public education because it tended to foster community values. Feminism had to go too. The scholars considered it a socialist project. That sounds a lot like Joseph R. Biden Jr. in his heyday. And even though now he's just an empty husk of his former irascibility and rapaciousness, this school of thought is still running rampant in his chosen cabinet members. The oligarchic revolution unfolds. Buchanan's ideas began to have huge impact, especially in America and in Britain. In his home country, the economist was deeply involved in efforts to cut taxes on the wealthy in the 1970s and 1980s, and he advised proponents of Reagan revolution in their quest to unleash markets and posit government as the problem rather than the solution. The Koch-funded Virginia School coached scholars, lawyers, politicians, and business people to apply stark right-wing perspectives on everything from deficits to taxes to school privatization. In Britain, Buchanan's work helped to inspire the public sector reforms of Margaret Thatcher and her political progeny. To put the success into perspective, McLean points to the fact that Henry Mann, whom Buchanan was instrumental in hiring, created legal programs for law professors and federal judges, which could boast that by 1990, two of every five sitting federal judges had participated. 40% of the U.S. federal judiciary, writes McLean, had been treated to a Koch-backed curriculum. I don't know about you, but I've had two court cases thrown out by federal judges who were in the back pocket of these assholes. McLean illustrates that in South America, Buchanan was able to first truly set his ideas in motion by helping a bare-knuckles dictatorship ensure the permanence of much of the radical transformation it inflicted on a country that had been a beacon of social progress. The historian emphasizes that Buchanan's role in the disastrous Pinochet government of Chile has been underestimated partly because unlike Milton Friedman, who advertised his activities, Buchanan had the shrewdness to keep his involvement quiet. With his guidance, the military junta deployed public choice economics in the creation of a new constitution which required balanced budgets and thereby prevented the government from spending to meet public needs. Supermajorities would be required for any changes of substance, leaving the public little recourse to challenge programs like the privatization of Social Security. This is austerity economics on steroids. 
The dictator's human rights abuses and pillage of the country's resources did not seem to bother Buchanan, McLean argues, so long as the wealthy got their way. Despotism may be the only organizational alternative to the political structure that we observe, the economist had written in The Limits of Liberty. If you have been wondering about the end result of the Virginia school philosophy, well, the economist helpfully spelled it out. What an oppressive title, The Limits of Liberty, A World of Slaves. Most Americans haven't seen what's coming. McLean notes that when the Koch's control of the GOP kicked into high gear after the financial crisis of 2007-2008, many were so stunned by the shock and awe tactics of shutting down government, destroying labor unions, and rolling back services that meet citizens' basic necessities that few realized that many leading the charge had been trained in economics at Virginia institutions, especially at George Mason University. Wasn't it just a new, particularly vicious wave of partisan politics? It wasn't. McLean convincingly illustrates that it was something far more disturbing. McLean is not the only scholar to sound the alarm that the country is experiencing a hostile takeover that is well on its way to radically and perhaps permanently altering the society. Peter Temin, former head of the MIT Economics Department, INET grantee and author of The Vanishing Middle Class, as well as economist Gordon Lafer of the University of Oregon and author of The 1% Solution, have provided eye-opening analyses of where America is headed and why. McLean adds another dimension to this dystopian big picture, acquainting us with what has been overlooked in the capitalist right-wing's playbook. She observes, for example, that many liberals have missed the point of strategies like privatization. Efforts to reform public education and social security are not just about a preference for the private sector over the public sector, she argues. You can wrap your head around those even if you don't agree. Instead, McLean contends, the goal of these strategies is to radically alter power relations weakening pro-public forces and enhancing the lobbying power and commitment of the corporations that take over public services and resources, thus advancing the plans to dismantle democracy and make way for a return to oligarchy. The majority will be held captive so that the wealthy can finally be free to do as they please no matter how destructive. So it's about power and control and not about efficiency at all. And as a public educator, I've always felt these ominous forces lurking in the background, especially with regard to arts education. What I've wanted to do with my life is in direct opposition to what these assholes have wanted to do. McLean argues that despite the rhetoric of Virginia school acolytes, shrinking big government is not really the point. The oligarchs require a government with tremendous new powers so that they can bypass the will of the people. This, as McLean points out, requires greatly expanding police powers to control the resultant popular anger. The spreading use of preemption by GOP-controlled state legislatures to suppress local progressive victories such as living wage ordinances is another example of the right's aggressive use of state power. So, dear viewers and listeners, we need a big government either way. Either we have a big government to oppose these assholes, or we have a big government to put their policies into practice. A small government isn't going to do anybody any good either way.
But you can see why they've been trying to brainwash my friends and relatives and yours too on the conservative side into believing that we need a small government. They're luring you through the media into believing that we need a small government so they can take you over and enslave you. You have owners. They own you. Could these right-wing capitalists allow private companies to fill prisons with helpless citizens or more profitable still, rightless, undocumented immigrants? They could and have. Might they engineer a retirement crisis by moving Americans to inadequate 401ks? Done. Take away the rights of consumers and workers to bring grievances to court by making them sign forced arbitration agreements? Check. Gut public education to the point where ordinary people have such bleak prospects that they have no energy to fight back? Getting it done. Would they even refuse children clean water? Actually, yes. To go on to the next clip, click the link above my rounded pate.